You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. Uh, my name's Scott. This is our Monday night CT. We're in the book of Philippians. We've got a great subject tonight, the greatest enemy to happiness. So we have been studying the book of Philippians. This is the book of joy, or to use a more modern term, a book of happiness. And it's written by the Apostle Paul, who's in prison. He's been there unjustly for years, and he just can't stop talking about how happy he is. This week, though, we're going to see his tone change a little bit. He goes from happy, look on the bright side, optimistic, everything is great, Paul, to angry Paul, to beware. Paul is getting out the caution tape, and he's trying to warn us about a very real danger to our spiritual lives, the thing that will steal your happiness more than anything else. In fact, if you are following God and you're not a very happy person, we might have the answer for you tonight. We might have the solution to your problem. Joy's greatest enemy. What is, he's going to talk about the sin that the Bible, especially Paul and Jesus, get more worked up about than any other sin that they talk about. What, you might be wondering, is this horrific sin that we find in Philippians 3? Is it prostitution and pimpery? Okay, that would be really bad, but that's not what they're talking about here. And they don't get worked up about that like they get worked up about what we're going to talk about tonight. Is it greed and exploitation of the poor? Also, a terrible thing, but not our subject tonight. Is it the sin of not recycling? A horrible, horrible thing in the minds of so many. But once again, that's not what we're talking about tonight. No, the sin that we'll talk about is this right here. Self-righteous legalism. Dun, dun, dun. What is it? What is legalism? Legalism is where you relate to God based on your performance, based on your good works. And God has a real problem with this because God is so much higher than we are. He's, he's perfect. He's totally righteous. He's never done wrong. He's perfectly loving. And we, we got all kinds of problems. We've turned away from him. We fall short of his perfect standard on a daily, hourly, minute-by-minute basis. And when human beings come to God and they're like, hey, God, look at this good thing I did. I deserve your acceptance. God's like, no, you don't. Don't you know who I am and don't you know who you are? This is why God sent Jesus Christ. We've been talking about this every week. He sent Jesus to live the perfect life, to meet God's perfect standard. He died in our place and he offers forgiveness freely to anyone who will receive it. And so that is the only way to approach God. It's by placing my trust in Jesus. It's by getting down on my knees and saying, God, I've got nothing to offer. Please give me your free gift. And God says, now that I can deal with. But when people come in acting like, you know, God owes them a ticket into heaven, that really makes God upset. You know, Paul had this problem in the churches that he planted. You know, legalism. He would plant these groups and he would tell them all about the amazing grace of God. And then these false teachers would come in behind him and they would start saying things like this. Well, you know, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses... You cannot be saved. What are they talking about? Well, these were false teachers. You know, they had the Old Testament at this point. 
Jesus was Jewish. He came out of a Jewish Old Testament context, but he brought a whole new way of relating to God. Now, in the Old Testament, Jewish boys had to get circumcised on the eighth day. And I'm not going to go into what circumcision is. I'm sure you know what it is. And, you know, I'm not going to make a bunch of circumcision jokes either, right? Because that would be way below the standard of humor that we have for this CT, right? (laughs) In fact, I had a bunch of circumcision jokes in here, and I cut, cut, cut them all out of there. (laughs) You know, circumcision jokes are not even that funny. It's like, person starts telling the joke, and they get to the end of the joke, and then, you know, it gets cut off. (laughs) So, you know, we're not going to go there, all right? But the point is, you know, Jews that were born Jewish, they got circumcised on the eighth day of their lives. But if you were a non-Jew and you wanted to become a Jew, you had to go through, as a grown man, you had to go through adult male circumcision. And that was a huge barrier to people converting to Judaism. It was completely unnecessary for Christianity, and yet these false teachers kept coming through and trying to get people to get circumcised. They they said, you have to take on circumcision, and you have to take on the whole law of Moses. It was about more than just circumcision. It was about obeying all of the rules in here. And so their free gift, the free gift of forgiveness, it went from free to very, very costly. You know, imagine I'm standing down front and I'm saying, Jesus died for you. You can have forgiveness. You can spend eternity with God. All you have to do is humble yourself, receive the free gift, and come on down front and we're going to circumcise you without any anesthesia because it hasn't been invented yet and take on the whole law of Moses. And if you work really hard, then maybe God will accept you. Well, that's not free. That's very costly. Salvation cost Christ everything but it's free for us. And He gives us a free gift. And yes, our lives will change in response to that free gift, but not to earn the gift. And so forgiveness went from free to costly. And Paul knew that these false teachers were infiltrating all these different churches he had planted. And that if they weren't necessarily at Philippi yet, it's a little hard to tell if they've come there yet. But Paul knows if it's not there yet, it will be. And that's a warning for us even if it's not necessarily present in our lives or in our groups, there's always a danger. It's always lurking. And so let's see what Paul says, starting in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. That's kind of what he's been saying the whole time. He's like, you should be so happy because you know Christ and everything he's done for you. And he says, to write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. So he's starting to talk in terms of safeguard. And he says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. And so you can see the the tone has changed. You know, the first four commands in this chapter are rejoice, beware, beware, and beware. He's saying this is a safeguard for you. You know, Paul, he's getting out caution tape, and he's wrapping it all over this part of the letter. You know, this is like when you you turn onto the highway and they have these signs, you're going the wrong way, this is an exit only, you're going to die, the people in your car are like, I'm too young to die, and that's when you realize I'm going up the exit ramp. They put those warning signs there because they know impending doom, there are people coming at 70 miles an hour the other direction, and they're trying to warn you now before you're out on the highway, and you're going to meet your certain death. 
And that is what Paul is doing here. He's saying, beware, beware, beware. He's setting happiness and joy over against legalism. And I've said it before, I'll say it again. If you are unhappy and you're, you're calling yourself a Christian, you're unhappy and you're following God here tonight, it may be because you've fallen under law. It may be because this danger of legalism has come into your life. What, what is he talking about here? He says, beware of the dogs. Now Paul is calling names. He says, these teachers, they're dirty, mangy dogs. And when we think dogs, we think, you know, cute little puppy, man's best friend. No, no. Back then, dogs were not anyone's best friend. They were mangy, disease-ridden. They'd carry disease. They would eat just the, the, the animal, you know, excrement mixed with all kinds of other stuff, you know, food and stuff on the streets. They were gross, gross animals. And, you know, the religious people in Jerusalem, for example, the Pharisees, they used to call Gentiles, they would call non-Jews dogs, those filthy dogs. And Paul is turning the tables on them. He says, no, actually, if you come teaching the law and circumcision, you are the dog. Did you know if you are a, a teacher of law, you're a dog, according to Paul? He also says, beware of the evil workers. Again, these guys, they thought they were coming and teaching righteousness. They were teaching the law of Moses, the practice of circumcision. But Paul says, no, actually, you are a worker of evil. He calls them the opposite of what they think they are. And so once again, if you are a teacher of law, Paul says, you are an evil worker. He also says, beware of the false circumcision. You know, this word false, the word false isn't in there. And it's not the word for circumcision. The word is katatome, katatome. Tome means to cut. It's contrasted with peritome. You know, peri is like the perimeter, right? Peritome is to cut around. That's circumcision. That's the normal word for it. He's going to use that in the next verse. Kata, though, that prefix, that means to cut down, to cut deep into, to cut throughout, to cut against. When you look at how this word is used, it says it means mutilation. It means cutting up in pieces. He says the mutilators, the ones who want to cut things up in pieces, beware of them. Kittle says it's used to mean to cut into strips, to kill, to chop up the dissection. Ugh. He says it's used for the cutting up of meat, especially sacrificial meat. And so he's like, this is what they want to do to you. They want to cut it into strips and kill and chop up and dissect. That is what these guys are into, these false teachers. It's really disgusting imagery. It, it, if you're like, this is pretty gross, that's because it is pretty gross. I'm trying to bring out the sense of what Paul was saying. In the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's used to describe the forbidden practice of false religion. You know, they would like cut themselves to please the gods. There's this scene in 1 Kings 18 where they kind of have this God showdown where there's like 450 prophets of this God named Baal. And these guys are dancing around. They're kind of doing like a rain dance, but it's like to get fire to come down from heaven, to get lightning to come down. And they're shouting and they're screaming and they're showing the God how sincere they are. And they reach a certain point 
and it says, they shouted louder, and following their normal custom, they catatomed themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out. And they're like, you see how serious I am? Uh, uh, uh. They're cutting each other. They're cutting themselves. They're, they're trying to show the gods. You know, if I hurt myself, then maybe you got to do something for me. That was the thinking. This is the thinking of religion. And what Paul is saying about these false teachers is he says they're the mutilators. They're just like the pagan worshipers of Baal. This is not what God wants. What, you hurt yourself bad enough, God's going to look with favor on you? What kind of a God is that? I mean, Paul, the way he talks about these guys, like in the book of Galatians, we studied this recently. He says, you know these, these false teachers? He says, even if we are an angel from heaven should preach a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be condemned to hell. He says, these guys can go to hell. God damn these teachers is what he says. Quote, unquote. He is damning them to hell. You know Paul's pretty angry when he starts talking like that. And in case you missed it, in case you're like, whoa, slip of the pen there, Paul. The very next verse he says, as we said before in verse 8, and now I say again in verse 9, if anyone is preaching a gospel contrary to what you received, let him be condemned to hell. God damn them twice, he says. Two verses in a row. Look at Jesus. I could say a lot more about Paul, but look at what Jesus said about the Pharisees. These were the religious legalists of his day. He said, Jesus said, you know, the religious legalists, they crush people with unbearable religious demands, and they never lift a finger to ease the burden. These guys are awful. They're crushing people. He says, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, you hypocrites? You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves, and you don't let others enter either. You're shutting the door to heaven in people's faces, and you're not getting in yourself, and you don't even let people in because you're teaching law. You're driving people away from God. How many of us wanted nothing to do with God because of what we saw from self-righteous Christians, so-called Christians? It is such a turnoff. Nobody wants this, and God doesn't want it either. And he's really angry when people communicate, this is what I want. I want to give you a whole bunch of rules to follow, and maybe I'll love you if you do it. I want you to harm yourself physically to maybe get into my good graces. No, no, no. He says, you Pharisees, you cross land and sea to make one convert. Yeah, legalists always want to make other people legalists with them. And then you turn that person into twice the child of hell that you yourselves are. You're like evangelists for Satan. Woe to you. He calls them blind guys. And the next verse, he calls them, you blind fools. And then two verses later, he calls them, you blind men. You're like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Yeah, God is so mad when people honor him with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. He wants a relationship. And when we clean up the outside, that's what the Pharisees did. They cleaned up the outside, but they were so wicked and evil on the inside. 
He says, you snakes, you sons of vipers, how will you escape the judgment of hell? Boy, he doesn't talk that way about anybody. Let's summarize here. Jesus and Paul on legalists. What have they called them so far? Happiness killers, mangy dogs, evil workers, man-crushing heaven blockers, Satan's evangelists, blind guides, blind fools, and blind men, whitewashed tombs full of hypocrisy and also dead body parts, snakes and sons of vipers headed for the judgment of hell, and finally, last but not least, are you ready for it, goddamned meat mutilators, (laughs) quote unquote. I can't make this stuff up. It's right there in the text. You think God's trying to communicate something here? This is how the Bible communicates emphasis. Different sins are worse than others. And this one is really bad. How much they talk about it, how strongly they talk about it. It's funny, you never seem to see Christians going off like this on sins like this. They go off on sins that aren't even sins or are barely mentioned in the Bible. They make up all kinds of rules and get mad at people for violating them. Meanwhile, this is right here in Scripture, and they don't seem to be that upset about it. Maybe because that's kind of how some Christians are living. Legalism. Man. You know, there's really two types of legalism. There's, there's what I would call pure legalism, type number one. And, you know, this would be the type that says either, one, works are required to gain God's acceptance right? And that's honestly typical religion. That's what it is. You've got to do some works, and maybe God or the gods will accept you. There's even some so-called branches of Christianity that teach exactly this. They teach the whole concept of the scales, the good has to outweigh the bad. That is not what scriptures teach. They teach salvation's a free gift. We talk about that all the time here. I've said it already. I'll keep saying it. There's another version of legalism that says, okay, works aren't required to gain God's acceptance, but they're required to keep God's acceptance, which is essentially the same thing. You know, I mean, I was raised under blank slate theology, which essentially, at least my understanding was, when you become a Christian, you get your slate wiped clean, but then you have to be pretty much perfect from then on out, or if you do sin, you have to confess it in order to get it forgiven, which is pretty exhausting trying to even remember all the sins that I committed much less confess them all. It's also pretty depressing if that's my time with God. Or just in general losing your salvation because you've sinned too much. Some Christians teach that. I don't think that's not what the Bible teaches. You know, here's one author, John Oswald. He says, you can't earn eternal life. That's a gift from God. But you can earn eternal death if you continue in sin. I'm not sure what the difference is there. This is legalism. On the other hand, there's a thing called practical legalism. Practical legalism. And this one, it theoretically denies, number one, pure legalism, but in practice kind of lives like it's true. I have to earn God's acceptance. I have to look good. You know, under practical legalism, it's my self-worth is derived from my performance. I might fluctuate depending on how well I'm doing. There's an inherent insecurity to this. Did I spend time with God today? God must be happy with me. I'm good. I matter. Did I not? God must be very angry with me. And there's kind of a hiding. There's a shame that comes with this. There's an inherent insecurity to this because I never know why I matter. I never know where I stand with God. I'm focused on my duty and following the rules. 
for some of us, this is sort of what our Christian life is comprised of. What is my duty? What are the rules? There's kind of a resentment toward people trying to keep people off my back. There's a growing resentment toward God and others for their demands. Do you feel resentful toward God, toward the rules, toward the people around you that are making you do stuff? I bet you slipped under law. There's also a judgmental picking at other people. And there's an alienation that comes from that. You know, if I'm feeling bad about myself, I remember becoming a Christian. I, I, and I got to tell you, I go through constant cycles of this, of slipping back under law and then coming back under grace, and slipping back under law and coming back under grace. And one of the things you got to learn to do is you got to recognize when you're going the wrong direction and to get back under grace. But like I remember as a brand new Christian, it was so exciting. I felt so close to God. I felt so happy about this new faith that I had. And it seemed easy to do the right thing. And then, you know, a few weeks go by, a month goes by, whatever. And then I found myself starting to slip back into old habits. I found myself failing. And I didn't know what to do with that. And so I I thought, I sure don't want to let other people see this. You know, I tried to hide that from God. I tried to hide that from the Christians in my life. And part of what happened then is as I, I kept trying to clean up the outside and look good to people, but on the inside, I found myself growing more and more despairing, having more and more problems that I felt like I had to hide. And it's only natural if you're feeling bad about yourself to start trying to find problems with other people. And so... You know, I kind of fell into this thing with the other Christians in my life where I was feeling bad about myself, trying to hide my problems from people, and also sort of picking at their problems, trying to bring them down. And the whole thing, everybody's being brought down, down, down. It's terrible. This is no way to live. This is no way to follow God. This is not the happiness that Paul talks about in this book, the joy that Jesus promises. And so we're going through the motions, we're following the rules, we're carrying this burden around, and we wonder why we're not happy. We wonder why we're not experiencing the victorious Christian life. Well, Paul goes on to say, for we are the true circumcision. The true circumcision. Yeah, so, you know, in the Old Testament, they had the ritual of circumcision, and As with the other physical, you know, rituals and things like that in the Old Testament, these were pictures of something God would do in the New Testament. And what was circumcision a picture of? Well, God tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 30. He says, you know, I've given you circumcision, but one day the Lord your God will circumcise your heart so that you may love Him with all your heart and with all your soul and you will live And so what is he talking about here? He's not talking about some sort of physical cutting away of some kind of flesh on our heart, but he's talking about a transformation of our heart, where we need to be changed at the heart level. And the circumcision that God did, that God had them do, it was only supposed to be a picture of the real thing that he would one day do. Like Romans 2 says, true circumcision, it's a change of heart produced by God's Spirit. That's not something you can do with a knife. That's something that only God's Spirit can do. And the moment you become a Christian, we receive a new heart, one that is capable of following God. And then as we learn how to live out our new identity, we gain more and more victory over the the sin in our lives and we become more and more like Christ. 
He says, we worship in the Spirit of God. We boast in Christ Jesus. We put no confidence in the flesh. Yeah, that's, that's the new worship of God. And notice the, the contrast here. He's really saying, where is your confidence? Is your confidence in Christ and what He has done? Or is your confidence in your flesh and what you have done and are doing? It's one or the other. It's self-righteousness or Christ-righteousness. Which one will we trust in? You know, this comes out in different ways. How do you respond to failure? Very different under law versus under grace. You know, are you devastated? Are you surprised? Do you hide? Do you feel a tremendous sense of shame? Why would we be surprised that we fail? You know, we should be like, if we fail under grace, we should be like, thank you, God, so much. You knew that was going to happen. You love me. You've forgiven me. You've given me so much in spite of all this. Our failures should be a chance to draw closer to God, not to cower away in shame. Or how do you respond to success? How do you respond to success? Smug, lack of empathy for others that are struggling, boasting in your success. Do you have this sense of, now I finally matter? You can have that under law. But under grace, we should be actually kind of surprised by our success. We should be grateful to God that He's done anything good through me. We should be pointing all the glory to Him and not to ourselves. It should humble us when we succeed under grace because we can't believe the person God is making me into. And then Paul says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. You know, one of the charges his enemies may have been making is, well, you know, Paul's just, he's turning to grace because he couldn't cut it. You know, the person who's like, well, it's not matter, it doesn't matter how, whether you win, it's how you play the game. Okay, that's usually said by losers. The winners are like, yeah, I won. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, Paul, I mean, yeah, I guess he's probably into grace because he, he was a loser. And Paul's like, oh, contraire. You want, to, you want to compare resumes? He says, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. And then Paul goes on to give his credentials, his resume. And he says, let me just give you seven points on my resume. Because seven is, you know, the number of perfection, right? I was circumcised on the eighth day, okay? He's like, I'm in the eighth day club. Like it's supposed to be written in, in the Old Testament, okay? I'm not like later in life circumcision. Eighth day, sir, eighth day club right here, baby. I'm of the nation of Israel, and I'm not just of the nation of Israel, but I even know my tribe, which most Jews at this point did not know, of the tribe of Benjamin. And he says, a Hebrew of Hebrew, which probably means, it's hard to know what he means by this. He might, he might just be saying, I'm like a super Jew, which he was. <laughs> Okay? It's hard to find somebody more Jewish and more observant than, than Paul. He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. It might also mean both of his parents were Hebrews, and he'd been raised in the Hebrew customs, the Hebrew traditions. He says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. The Pharisee, the most elite group of law followers, they said, if only two people get into heaven, surely one of them will be a Pharisee. They were so rigorous in their discipline of following the law, they actually had this belief, if we can just get 
all Jews to follow the law of God for one day, God will send the Messiah. That was a teaching among the Pharisees. And so they were so angry that no one is trying as hard as me to follow the law. Like religious people tend to be angry that no one's trying as hard as me. So he's like, you couldn't find a more scrupulous law follower. In fact, he was trained under the elite rabbi of his day, Gamaliel. He says, I was advancing far beyond all of my contemporaries. No one could keep up with me and my righteousness and my, my pursuit. He says, you want zeal? Okay, I wasn't just going around trying to get people circumcised like y'all. I was a persecutor of the church. He actually dragged men and women into the courts, cast his vote to put them to death. He was, he was a murderer. He contributed directly to the murder of Christians as they smiled and told him about Jesus. And finally, he says, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But what Paul didn't realize is there was a greater righteousness, a real righteousness, the reality of Christ. And that's why he says, but whatever things were gained to me, all those things on my resume, I've counted them as loss for the sake of Christ. And then he says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Okay. He says, I've counted his loss. I count all things to be lost. I've suffered the loss, and I count them but rubbish. He's really emphasizing what he thinks of all of his self-righteousness. You know, he first talks about loss. He says this three times. It means damage, disadvantage, loss, forfeit, with the implication of sustaining hardship or suffering. It's used in Acts 27 of the ship that goes down, and all the cargo is lost. Paul says, that's basically the first part of my life. It's sitting at the bottom of the ocean somewhere. It is lost. I'm not counting on that at all anymore. And he says, I counted it as lost. That's like a past one-time event. But I also continually count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's what he thinks of his self-righteousness. And then he says, he takes it up a notch at the end of verse 8. He says, I count them but rubbish. What is rubbish? It sounds like an angry British person, right? It's a really strong word. Translators are always getting a little squeamish on this word. Let me tell you what it means. Moises Silva says this, what Paul once regarded highly, he now finds revolting. It makes him want to puke. He says there's no need to downplay the meaning of skubala. That's the word, skubala or skubalon. With such equivalence as rubbish, like some translations, he says. No, he says this, this word is used with reference to excrement. The KJV renders it dung. And he says that is both appropriate and probable. It's a vulgar word. Once again, Paul is using kind of raw language in reference to the subject of legalism. Here's one of the two leading Greek New Testaments, Greek uh, word study tools. Kittle says, the word is used of persons and things to denote pitiful and horrible remains. Like a corpse, half eaten by fishes as the remnant of a much bewailed sea voyage, like a ship sinks and it's in the bottom of the sea for a year and the fishes have eaten away part of the corpse and you, you go down there and you look at it. 
And, you know, you got the bubbles coming out of your mouth and stuff. And Paul's like, that's, that's my righteousness before Christ. That half-eaten corpse. My circumcision, my Jewish pedigree, my zeal, my righteousness in the law. He says, the word carries with it the thought of what is worthless, useless, abhorrent, and unclean. Josephus tells how the inhabitants of Jerusalem during the famine had to search sewers and dung, skibalon, for something. They're searching through the skibalon for something to eat. The choice of the vulgar term stretches the force and totality of this renunciation. Yeah, he says the vulgar term. And then look at BDAG lexicon. It's useless or undesirable material that is subject to disposal, refuse, garbage, excrement, manure, garbage, kitchen scraps, human excrement. To convey the crudity of the Greek, he says, it's all crap. That's in like the leading Greek dictionary. And you know what else is in there? This right here. It says, it's used in this sentence. God bestows wonderful things from the word beyond and then... I kid you not, as opposed to the finery of this world, which in contrast is that word. That is in a Greek scholarly dictionary in reference to skibalon. Pretty bad. So Paul can't emphasize enough what he thinks of the things that so many would think are gain all of the wealth, all of the acclaim, all of the decades working as hard as he can to be a good person, to follow the law. He was better than anybody. And he says, it's a bunch of, it's a big steamy load of skibalon. That's loss. That's skibalon. In view of what? He says, for the sake of Christ. For the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, so that I may gain Christ, he says. Yes, he's trading the rule book for a relationship. The closeness, the love that he experiences with Jesus Christ on a daily basis is so much better than religion. It's so much better than the rules. You're missing out if you're into religion and rules. Christ offers so much more to you. And he says, and that I may be found in him. I love the, the image of found. You know, my whole life before I met Christ, I was so lost. And then finally one day I was found. And it was the best day of my life. Best day of my life. And I've felt found and valued by him ever since. And that might be the thing that's missing in your life. Be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. I'm going to somehow pull a righteousness out of this thing. No, it's that which is through faith in Christ. And in case you missed it the first time, it's the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Trust. No works righteousness. Trust in God and receive his righteousness and a relationship with him. It's Christ's righteousness or self-righteousness. You've got to trust in one or the other. Yeah, it's, it's a choice. Paul's presenting it as a choice here. 
And he's warning us of legalism. He's warning us of law. And he says, if you go the way of legalism, you're going to regret. It's awful. It's Kabbalah. You know, you're going to be, spend your life cleaning up the outside while the inside rots. That's what you want to do with your life? That's not what God wants. You're going to grow in your cynicism and despair that I'm never going to change even though I've tried so hard. You're trying the wrong way by self-effort. You're going to spend your life self-righteously comparing yourself to others and trying to tell yourself you're not that bad, the way of the Pharisee? Why would you want to do that? It sucks. And I, I know because I've done this so many times. Exhaustion. You're so worn out. You're so worn out. Trying to matter for this, that, or the other reason. And I should add, there's a notable lack of happiness or closeness with God. A notable lack of happiness or closeness with God. Nobody's going to look at your life and say, boy, I want to know Jesus. You're missing out on so much if you're living your life this way. On the other hand, the way of grace, God changes you from the inside out. You change in relationship with Him. You will find peace and happiness in daily drawing near to Him. Where each day you draw near to Him, you're so thankful for everything He's given you, everything He's done for you. It's such a relief. You realize, I was feeling bad about this. I was feeling bad because I did that. God, thank you that you love me. Thank you for the rest you offer. Thank you for the peace you offer. Thank you that I'm going to be in heaven real soon. It's like in, the, in the, the blink of an eye. Thank you for all the other good things you've given me in my life. I don't deserve any of this, God. You are so good to me. And then you face your day with that perspective. You become a more loving Christ-like person as you walk with him, as you live out who you really are. So are you tired of religion? Are you tired of religion? Would you rather have the mountain of dung or the reality of knowing Christ? That's the choice before you. The mountain of dung or the reality of knowing Christ? It doesn't seem like that hard of a choice, actually. Would you rather have the treadmill of works or the peace and rest that comes from forgiveness, happiness, gladness that can only come from Christ? Yeah, Lord, you, um, you love us. Love is at the core of who you are, and you want to love relationship with us, and you loved us enough to send your son to die for us so that we could enter into a love relationship with you, God, and all the rituals and all the pictures from the Old Testament, they just pointed forward to this new way, this new and living way, this better way. And I'm thankful that we live under the better way, God, and I pray for anybody here who has never come to Christ and received that forgiveness, I pray they do that, God, and they would, they would exchange all of the, the dung of their religiosity for the reality of relationship and forgiveness. And I pray for those of us here who are finding ourselves under law that we would have some dealings with you, Lord, tonight, that we would admit what we've, um, the perspective we've fallen into, that we would thank you, God, for your forgiveness, and that we would begin relating to you like the loving Father that you are. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.